I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Scott has been preaching through Philippians for a matter of weeks now, for some time. And uh, last week, chapter 2 ended with Paul, who wrote the letter of Philippians, talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he says these are men that are worthy of honor and imitation. Uh, This chapter that we're about to read now, Paul is going to tell us, well, these are some folks you need to watch out for. These guys are not worthy of imitation. They are, in fact, a danger to the church. Uh, the verses we're going to read form in part the theological backbone to the letter of Philippians. Now, Paul's letters, normally, uh, he spends a good bit of time saying, hey, this is what's true. This is what's true through Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the gospel, and these are the propositional truths of the gospel. Then he spends a lot of time in application. Well, in this letter, he kind of mixes it up more. He's, he's been telling us already that we should love each other. He has been calling the Philippians, to sacrifice for each other. And now he is laying out some of the theological background for that sacrifice. These commands and exhortations from Paul in this letter really flow out of the truths in these verses. So with that said, we will read Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Before we do, I'll pray for us. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, would you send your light in your truth, and let them guide us. We admit our weakness. We want to hear from your word. But, Father, unless by your Spirit you illumine your word, we won't see it properly. So we pray you would do that. Lord, come and impress these truths in our heart. Apply them to our hearts by the Holy Spirit and cause us to live in line with them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this is Philippians 3. 1 through 11, hear God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thanks to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Uh, Faith in Jesus Christ is important to the Christian life. Faith is important to the Christian faith. I hope that sounds like an understatement. Um, Faith is obviously a big deal to the Christian life. It's a big deal 
Because of what we believe, faith in Jesus Christ does. We believe it justifies us. Uh, a key biblical truth for the church is that justification, uh, being righteous in God's sight, being acceptable to God, uh, being not guilty before God, this justification comes by faith in Jesus alone. Uh, for those in Christ, for those who have trusted in Jesus, God looks at you and says, I find no wrong in you. I heartily approve of you. The judgment's in our favor, in other words. We believe that this status, this righteousness, justification, is actually a gift from God given to faith in Jesus. It's not our own, according to what Paul says in verse 9. It's not our own righteousness. It's not something we work for by keeping the rules and God gives to us. No, God gives it to us through faith in Jesus. Our faith unites us to Christ. That's why the Bible talks about faith. It binds us to Christ. Uh, and again, in verse 9, Paul talks about his desire to be found in Christ. When talk, Paul talks about being in Christ, he's talking about this union with Christ. Uh, part of what that means is that Jesus is now our representative before God. God judges us in Christ. What Jesus does, then, counts for us. When we trust Christ, God judges us no longer on the basis of our own works, achievements, and worthiness, but on the works, achievements, and worthiness of Christ. In other words, we get to name drop. We come to God, he asks, why should I accept you? And we get to say, I'm with Jesus. I, I know Jesus by faith. Uh, I've been united to him by faith. Because of him, you let me in. And God says, okay, I I'm pleased with that. I'm pleased with Jesus, so I accept you. That's how it works, and um, this is core to Christianity, of course. If you spent any time in the church, you've heard this, but it's something we have to keep hearing. We believe the Father is quite pleased with us in Christ, so pleased that when Christ died, he announced that this one is righteous. Paul talks about the resurrection a good bit in these verses, and the reason he's talking about the resurrection is because the resurrection was the announcement of God that Jesus Christ, this man who lived on the earth that I called my son, he was righteous. In other words, he didn't deserve death. And because he didn't deserve death, when he died, I'm raising him up. That's why Paul talks about resurrection. Uh, that's why he looks forward to his own resurrection because of Jesus and not myself. I'm righteous and will be raised to eternal life because in Christ, God is pleased with me. This is what we believe this passage and the rest of Scripture teaches about being righteous. It comes through faith in Christ alone. As the Shorter Catechism said, faith in Jesus Christ is rest, receiving and resting on Christ alone for our salvation. So, given that being approved by God and being judged favorably by Him is a pretty big deal, we believe, well, this is very important. We believe this article of our faith is very important. Uh, in fact, Martin Luther, who I mentioned earlier, uh, Martin Luther was a pastor in Germany who many see as really the spark that caused the Reformation. Uh, this weekend, Reformed churches, which our denomination, we consider ourselves Reformed, Reformed churches are celebrating this event we call the Protestant Reformation. When um, churches began to recover this key truth that were justified by faith alone, and it actually led to the Protestant church breaking off from the Catholic church, um, this breaking off was not, only a dis it was not only a cause of disunity in the church. Uh, this wasn't just a protest in the church. It was recovery of the gospel. Martin Luther 
led that in large part. He was the spark to it, many people say. And he said this about the doctrine of justification by faith. This one and firm rock, which we call the doctrine of justification, is the chief article of the whole Christian doctrine. If this article stands, the church stands. If it falls, the church falls. In other words, to Martin Luther, if we lose this article of our faith, if we corrupt this truth with error, we lose the truth that makes the church the church. So we might think it's easy. Oh, well, we just need to remember we're justified by faith in Christ. God accepts us because we're righteous by faith. We'll remember that. Well, it's actually trickier than it sounds. In fact, holding on to this truth is something we have to fight for. That's what Paul's doing here. Uh, he's fighting for this truth. He's obviously worried about their safety, their spiritual safety in the church. That's why he says in verse 1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe to you. I'm worried about your safety. Uh, he also tells them, look out. Look out for these people. Uh, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilation, those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, the situation was that this doctrine that we're justified by faith in Christ again, accepted by God because of our faith, was under attack. Uh, some people were going around the churches telling them, you know, faith in Jesus is a good start. Uh, it, it's a good start to gain acceptance with God. But if you really want full acceptance, you need more. If you want to be righteous before God and accepted by him into his kingdom, well, you need to keep some of these rituals. Uh, you need to keep some of these ceremonies that we have. Uh, these people were Jews who professed faith in Jesus who are telling these Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, you can't simply trust Jesus and be saved. You have to keep our rules and regulations and ceremonies, especially circumcision. And without laying out the theological reasons why they are wrong, Paul, who wrote this again, himself born a Jew, who was even the most strict of the Jews, says, watch out for these guys. They are wrong. What they're teaching is poison. They're trying to take you away from Christ. Now notice again, these people, these false teachers, as Paul would say, probably weren't denying the need to believe in Jesus. They weren't saying, throw Jesus out altogether. They were just saying that he wasn't enough and that you need to add to him. You need something in addition. Paul says, when you do this, when you try to add to Jesus, well, you end up losing him altogether. When you add, try to add to Christ, you lose him and you actually start trusting yourself instead of Christ. It's a huge temptation, according to Paul, to trust ourselves for our righteousness instead of Christ. That's why he has to warn them. Uh, he has to warn them because this is a threat they're susceptible to. First of all, this sounds plausible, doesn't it? Uh, it makes sense that God would require certain works from us. It makes sense that if we jump through certain hoops, we could prove our worth to him and he would accept us. That's how we work a lot of times. Uh, we want credentials for things. We want people to go through the right steps. We want hoops to be jumped through. But that's not the way God works. Uh, it, it also, there's something within us. This teaching, this call to self-righteousness, is so appealing to us because there's something about us that just loves to do this. There's something about us that loves the feeling of self-righteousness. I mean, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, don't we love this feeling? We love feeling, you know, I'm a good person. I'm better than many, if not better than most. And as a matter of fact, I just don't need a lot of help. According to what Paul says here, and according to what the rest of Scripture teaches about justification by faith in Christ alone, this kind of self-righteousness, this self-righteous 
attitude is completely inconsistent with the Christian faith. And we have to fight against it. It is not simply enough, actually, to know that it's wrong. You actually have to be on the lookout for it and fight against it. We have to hold on to the truth that we're justified by faith alone. Faith alone in Christ. Not Jesus plus anything, not Jesus plus our effort. We're justified by faith alone. We have to cling to the truth of being righteous by faith in Christ, not by our own moral superiority or religious effort. Uh, So, with all that said, how do we do that? Uh, How do we cling to this precious truth that we're justified by faith in Jesus? Well, Paul tells us how to do so, I think. And he gives us an example in these verses. In order to hold on to faith in Jesus and avoid the danger of trusting ourselves instead of Christ, we need to know how to rejoice in Christ, and we also need to know where to place our confidence. So two things, how to rejoice in Christ, where to place our confidence. All right, first of all, we need to learn how to rejoice, uh, specifically how to rejoice in the Lord Jesus. This is what Paul says in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This is part of their safety. This is part of the thing that keeps them safe from this temptation. Rejoice in the Lord. Uh, joy is a big theme in Philippians. Uh, the word joy or rejoice is used about 13 times at least in four chapters. That, that's a lot. That's frequent usage. Uh, a good question is, how do we rejoice, though? Now, normally, we normally think of joy as something that happens to us. If our circumstances are good, everything's right, uh, life is going well, Joy happens to us. Joy is something that comes to us. But Paul actually says joy is something you have to pursue. Uh, Joy is commanded here. Well, how do we keep this command then? How do we rejoice? Well, I I think there's two steps that we can see in this passage. First of all, in order to rejoice, we actually have to learn how to mourn. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 5, doesn't he? Blessed are those who mourn. Uh, The ones who are happy with blessing, according to Jesus are the ones who know how to mourn. Paul demonstrates that kind of mourning in these verses. Uh, Look through verses 5 and 8. You can see this is a list of Paul's religious credentials. Uh, He talks about his family. He he talks about the kind of people he comes from. They were the kind of people who, well, they were God's chosen people. He was from the nation of Israel. And not just generically from the nation of Israel, he was from the good part. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin was one of the tribes they, that was loyal. They were in the southern kingdom, the kingdom that didn't apostatize so quickly. And the people who actually came back to Jerusalem when God led them out of exile, they were the faithful ones. That's who Paul belonged to. His family did it right. They had him circumcised on the eighth day. That's just how the law says to do it. They were the kind of people who did it right. He was from the right kind of people. Uh, he had the right kind of life as well. It says he was a Pharisee. Uh, a Pharisee, you meet them in the Gospels all the time. Uh, we usually have kind of negative views of them because, well, they are painting a negative light in the Gospels. But the people then would have respected them very much. Pharisees were people who took seriously the Word of God. Uh, they strictly interpreted it. Uh, they were seen as pure and holy by the people. This was a respectable position. This was a respectable person to be. Uh, He also notes his zeal. Uh, Not only is he a Jew and a faithful Jew, he's so zealous for Judaism that he even persecutes the church. Uh, When this group comes that begins to make claims that seem against Judaism, he persecutes them. Uh, Formally, Paul makes it clear, this is what he rejoiced in. 
This is what he rejoiced in, his own religious achievements. Uh, that's what he treasured. These achievements gave him confidence before God and meaning in his life. But now, these things that he rejoiced in, all these things that were considered his gain to his profit, he now considers them loss. And instead of rejoicing in them, he started to mourn them. He sees them as debt. They are worse than worthless, and they're actually a detriment. That's why in verse 8 he says, All this that I found meaning in, all this that I rejoiced in as my righteousness, now I see that it's all garbage. He's mourning what he used to rejoice in. Well, why is he mourning? He's mourning because he sees the sinfulness of it now. Uh, especially the fact that he persecuted the church. It felt right at the time, but now, looking back, Paul can see how horribly wrong he was. Uh, when Paul, when you read other letters, and Paul's looking back on his life in Judaism, he says something like this, um, I was full of coveting. And in my former life, I was full of coveting. Outwardly, I looked like I was keeping the rules. Inwardly, my heart was so jealous of others, and I was competing with others, and I wanted the recognition they had. Uh, in my former life, I looked like I loved God, but I didn't love God. In fact, I hated him and persecuted him and fought against this church, and I'm deeply ashamed of that now. He looks back and he says, the only reason God chose me as an apostle and preacher is to show everyone, if God can save this guy, he can save anybody. Nobody's beyond the reach of his patience. Paul says, I'm the example of that. That's how sinful I was. In other words, Paul looks back at his religious effort, at his doing the right things in his eyes. And he sees that even his best efforts, apart from Christ, were horribly corrupted by sin. Paul's life looked religiously and morally upright from the outside, but he mourns the wickedness of his heart when he thinks back on it. So, he's mourning his sin. This is step one to rejoicing in Jesus. Mourning our sin. Mourning the, our, our sinful actions, and even mourning the sinfulness that's even in our best actions. But Paul didn't stop there. Step two... He remembers who Jesus Christ is, and he's glad. Uh, look at what Paul says about Jesus in these verses. Verse 1, he says, Jesus is Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He's talking about Jesus Christ. First of all, he's Lord. Uh, verse 8, he says, By faith we know Christ. Not only is he Lord, but he's our Lord. By faith we know him and reunited to him. We belong to him. In verse 9, not only is he our Lord, he is our mediator between us and God again. He represents us and makes us right with God, so that in Him we're fully acceptable, eternally acceptable to God, the great judge and king. Paul has such deep joy in Christ, in fact, that he's lost all for Him, but he doesn't care, because again, he sees this, what used to be his treasure, and it's now garbage in comparison to Christ. Christ is his treasure, and his desire is to be found in Him. That's why he can say the things he does in Philippians 1, like to live in Christ and to die is gain. Because he treasures Christ. Paul rejoices so deeply in Jesus because he recognized the glory and worth of Jesus, but he also sees how badly he needs Jesus. As Paul mourns his sin, as he sees his sinfulness, Jesus, who takes away his sin and makes him righteous before God, becomes more and more precious to him. As he sees his sinfulness, he rejoices in Jesus that much more. Uh, there is a book of written prayers called The Valley of Vision, which I recommend to you. It's very good. Uh, and in this book, uh, the first prayer is entitled The Valley of Vision. And it, the point of this prayer is that the valley is actually where you see the glory of Christ most clearly. Now, normally you see better from mountains, right, from high points. But it's like, no, it's in the valley. 
It's in the low points where you see the glory of Christ most clearly. He compares it to being in a well, actually. Uh, as if he's fallen into a well at night and he's surrounded by darkness. But that's when the stars shine most clearly. That's when the stars shine most brightly. And the darker it is, the brighter, brighter they shine. He says, that's what it's like to see our sin and then see Christ. Uh, hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold your glory. When we see the darkness of our sin, it makes the glory of Christ shine that much brighter in our eyes. That's why it's those who mourn their own sinfulness, who rejoice in Christ most deeply. So for us, our application is, we need to imitate Paul here. First of all, we need to learn to mourn our sinfulness. We need to learn to mourn our sinfulness, weakness, and inadequacy of even our best efforts. Uh, what it means to be a sinner is sin isn't just something we do, but it's really core to who we are. To be a sinner means that sin is not just something we do, it's who we are. We have a sinful nature with sinful hearts uh, so that even the good we do is corrupted by sin. That's true for Christians and non-Christians. Uh, Christians, of course, were made new in Christ so that we have a heart that really can please the Lord. Uh, we have a heart, we have a new nature that now loves God and desires Him. But this old man, this old heart still lives on. And this old sinful nature still lives on. And still is at work within us. So that still our good, best efforts are corrupted by our sins. Even for those who can keep themselves away from the ugly sins. Even if you avoid the big sins, the sins that you really feel ashamed of. Our best works, our good works, are corrupted because they're often done for selfish reasons. Uh, they're often done to look good in front of others. Uh, when I was a young boy, probably six or seven, I was helping a, was a good friend of ours. We call him Coach Paps. He's a football coach. He was helping build a, uh, a shed for my parents to store things in. And, you know, I was helping as a six or seven-year-old. And my older brother, my older brother, who was probably 11 at the time, he was helping out as well. Uh, well, I loved to try to compete with my brother. And my brother was kind of lazy and didn't want to work. And so I would then, this was motivation for me to be, you know, a really hard worker so I can be better than him. And I remember saying over and over again to Coach Pap, I'm better than Tommy, aren't I? That was my brother's name. I I'm better than my brother, aren't I? That was my motivation for my good work. That turned my hard work into something hideous, didn't it? That turned my hard work into something completely worthless. That's what Paul is saying about our works. He says that about the Jews. These Jews who are trying to keep the laws, they're actually evildoers because they're keeping it for the wrong reasons. Uh, these Jews who are telling you you need circumcision, they're just mutilating the flesh. They take this thing from God that's a good thing in itself, and they make it evil by their motivations, by the darkness of their heart. We need to learn to recognize and mourn our sinfulness the way Paul does here. But we can't quit there. Again, we need to learn how to rejoice in Christ. Don't just wallow in your sin and shame and self-pity. We should remember Christ and his sacrifice and how he makes us righteous, 100% righteous before God. In him, though we're sinners, our status, our condition before God is righteous. We're free from our sins and we're going to keep sinning, but God's verdict is fixed in Jesus. We're fully and forever accepted by righteous, accepted as righteous in him. And that's good news. Uh, there's a pastor named Tim Keller who ministers in New York and has said this, about rejoicing. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, 
to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. So rejoicing is a way of pressing into God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it thinks it needs. Do you see how this rejoicing guards our faith in Christ alone then? It's a way to remember Christ's value and worth. See who he truly is. See that he truly is all that we need. And because of his great worth and our weakness, we're actually not capable of adding to what he's done. We either accept Christ alone as Savior or we reject him. There's no mixing Christ with our own worth. When you try to add to him, you lose him. So assess his value. Reflect on him until your heart is sweetened. Rejoicing in Christ is much easier said than done, and you really do have to learn how to do it. But it's essential if we're going to hold on to faith in Jesus. So, first of all, to hang on to our faith in Christ, we have to learn to rejoice. Secondly, to hang to our faith in Christ, we have to learn where to put our confidence. I'll go quickly. Uh, In verses 2 through 3, Paul is telling them about where to place their confidence. His charge against the Jews, teaching that they need to add to Christ, is that they're putting confidence in the flesh. Uh, The Christians, on the other hand, by definition, are those who place no confidence in the flesh. Uh, The flesh, according to Paul, is who we are and what we're able to do before Christ and apart from Christ. And so Paul talks about his former confidence in his flesh. Again, he lays out his resume. He was the right kind of person from the right kind of family, and they did things the right way. Uh, He had the right way of life. A Pharisee, strict and zealous and blameless, very respected by others. And that gave him great confidence once upon a time. That gave him great confidence that God would accept him. But note, it was all apart from Christ. Paul clearly communicates these as his own accomplishments. It was his confidence in the flesh. And it's important for us to note, you can be very, very religious, like Paul was. You can have the right kind of family and the right upbringing, be very moral and respectable, and be far from Christ and far from righteous. That's where Paul says he was. So again, he looks back on what he boasted in and says it was garbage. All his self-righteousness was really unrighteousness. It does not justify. It does not save. It does not make us right with God. His big point was that our efforts at keeping the law won't make us righteous. He makes this clear in Romans 3.20, another letter written by Paul. He says there, talking about the law, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since by works of the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul's saying here that he misunderstood the point of the law. Uh, The law of God, the commandments of God, they certainly do teach us how to please God. But they also are meant as a mirror to show us how we don't please God, to show us all of our shortcomings. And Paul's saying that he used those commands the wrong way. Uh, It's kind of like this. If it's true that the intention of God's command is really to show us our sinfulness, then trying to show our righteousness by keeping the rules is like when people use big words, but they don't really know what they mean. And I probably do this, so you can judge me for this. But when people use big words, and they use them wrongly, they're trying to show their intelligence, but they just show their ignorance. That's what it's like to try to keep God's commands to earn our righteousness. We're trying to be righteous, but it just shows our unrighteousness. Uh, Another example is when my son, Micah, who's two, flexes his muscles to show me his strength. He's showing his strength, and he's showing me how he's strong. But when I look at it, I'm just reminded how small and weak and adorable he is, right? It doesn't look like strength to me. If God were taking applications for heaven, Paul admits his former resume 
was filled with what he saw as strength. But in God's judgment, it only highlighted his sin and weakness. He was foolish to place his confidence in his own goodness. We are foolish then to place our confidence in our own goodness. So Paul's solution, his antidote to putting confidence in the flesh, is instead to boast in Jesus Christ. In verse 2 says, We glory in Christ. We glory in Christ and not ourselves. He's what we have to be proud of. He is what we brag about. He is the one we boast in. We boast in what he has done and put all of our confidence before God in Christ and none in our own accomplishments. We don't trust our own righteousness, but put all of our trust for acceptance with God in Christ alone. All right, one important thing for us to think about is, well, how do I know if I'm doing this? Because, again, we've probably heard this for a long time. We should trust Christ alone for salvation. But how do we know if we're falling to this sneaky, dangerous temptation of self-righteousness? Well, one of the best ways I know of is to ask yourself, well, how do I think of other people? How do I think of and treat others? If you are self-confident, if you are confident in your own righteousness, well, it's going to show in your attitude and your relationships with others. You will think you are better than many, if not most people, and you will treat them accordingly. You will think yourself more important than most people, and again, you'll treat those others accordingly. These commandments from, God, from Paul in Philippians, where he calls us to sacrifice, where he calls us to put others ahead of ourselves, where he calls us to take on the role of a servant, they're actually not possible if we are boasting in ourselves. It's really hard to serve somebody when you think you're better than them. It's really hard to put somebody ahead of yourself when you are convinced of your own moral superiority. It's really hard to do. You can't truly sacrifice for someone, can't truly put them ahead of yourself if you're convinced that you're better than them. When we quit being so self-righteous and give up being overly confident in ourselves, and when we instead put our confidence in Jesus, and we boast in Jesus, and we glory in what he's done for us, that's what actually makes us capable of obeying these commands that Paul gives us. That's when we can finally start putting others ahead of ourselves. So evaluate yourselves. How often do you serve others? How well do you take on the role of a servant? How well do you sacrifice for others? If you struggle to do that, it can mean that, well, you're really too confident in yourself. You have too high of a view of your own goodness. You need to repent. You need to take your confidence out of yourself and put it in Christ. Quit boasting in yourself, and instead boast in Christ. All right, for lots of us, uh, none of this is anything new. But again, Paul says in verse 1, you have to keep hearing these things. We have to keep hearing that we're justified by faith alone. We have to keep hearing that Jesus is our salvation, and we're not our salvation. We have to keep hearing not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in Christ. It's a safeguard for us. Cling to these truths. That's how we hold on the faith. Uh, of course, faith is a saving grace. I don't mean to say that our perseverance in the faith is all up to us. Our hope is that Christ has made us his own and that he won't let us go. But this is how we press on in the faith. So rejoice in Christ. Put all your confidence in him so that you won't wonder from this precious truth that Martin Luther said the church stands or falls on. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I confess my self-righteousness and thinking too much of myself. Lord, would you forgive me and forgive all of us. 
Father, we want to rejoice in Jesus more deeply. We want to cling to true faith. We want to attach ourselves to this doctrine of justification by faith and not let it go. Would you remind us of its goodness? Would you remind us of the worth of Christ so that this truth would dwell in our hearts more richly and bear good fruit? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.